everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Priyanka, and this is the Supply Chain Scoop, your midweek source of refreshing supply chain content and stories straight from titans in the industry. I'm in conversation with Craig Fuller, founder and CEO of Freight Weights, a platform that provides the most up-to-date information on the freight market. He's also the founder of BITA, which is the Blockchain and Transport Alliance, basically an association to help educate and advocate for the implementation of blockchain applications across the logistics industry. Craig's also been involved in developing a futures market for the trucking industry, which surprisingly isn't something that already exists. This is something that's of particular interest to me because it could be a game changer in what is over a $1 trillion industry. What's really interesting about Craig, though, is that he has inherited his background, interest, and love for trucking and logistics from his father, who owns US Express, the biggest privately owned trucking company in the US. So Craig's literally grown up in this industry around trucks and load boards and has seen it evolve over the years to what it is today. I have a lot of questions for Craig and I'm really, really excited. So let's get on. Hi there, Craig. Thank you so much for taking out the time to chat with me today. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, one point of correction on the introduction, which I really appreciate, is that US Express is now publicly traded. So a couple of months ago, I actually went uh, public on the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's very cool. I'd love a little bit of an introduction to yourself, Craig. Yeah, so I have been around, as, as you mentioned, my father. Actually, so my history in transportation and trucking actually started generations ago. Uh, my grandfather was one of the first sort of trucking pioneers. And there's, in the U.S., a trucking market. There are uh, sort of four kind of godfathers of long-haul trucking, and he happened to be one of those four. And and so he had started a trucking company, had sold it, started another one, he sold it. And then my father went out and started U.S. Express in 1985. My uncle went out and started Covenant Transport also in 1985. And so I was a young boy seeing my dad, you know, as a, as a startup executive in those days, trucking, it was a startup. And sort of scaled it to the company that it is today. And, and so I was around it, but also being a son of a founder and a hard driving entrepreneur, I wanted to have a great relationship with my father. I sort of idolized him. And so the way to get close to him was to learn what drove him, which was his business. And so I mm-hmm. learned how the trucking business worked and how it evolved. And so uh, while I'm 39 years old, I had 34 years of experience being around the industry because I was immersed in it uh, pretty much my whole life. So out of college, I uh, they started an air freight business that I went uh, and, and sold air freight services for U.S. Express. Uh, it was not a successful venture for them, uh, but it was for, sort of my first foray into moving outside. I did stuff around the business, you know, ran wires, uh, installed networks. I was the only guy, I was the help desk technician uh, in the 90s, and I was the only one that knew how to deal with Microsoft DOS and load windows. And so I was doing stuff around the business, but was not in it until after college, uh, where I became a salesperson and then sort of evolved. And, and then got my first real exposure of starting sort of an entrepreneurship. I started a division inside of Express, which provided on-demand trucking services to shippers. And we grew that business to $140 million in revenue in two years. I was, I was in my early 20s when this happened. So all of a sudden, I thought I was the smartest guy in the world. What I realized when I went out and started the business outside the family is I didn't know very much. And that was a struggle. And so, but I spent, you know, my whole life in the business and loved it. And uh, uh, and then I spent a decade outside of it and had to learn sort of uh, technology services and fintech and, and just how hard it is to sort of build an organic technology business and startup. 
That sounds incredible. It wouldn't even be wrong to say that transportation literally runs in your blood. Why don't you talk to me a little bit about freight waves? What is freight waves in maybe two or three sentences? Yeah, great question. So we're the largest provider of news and data analytics, market-level analytics to the freight market. And what that means is we have a staff, an editorial staff of about 12 folks, Total staff size about 70, but we're, we, we have analysts that are looking at all of the supply and demand drivers of the freight market and sort of articulating that in data. So it's been described as an industrial Bloomberg or a, a, a Bloomberg of freight, but really providing, taking in macro uh, indicators and economic indicators and providing those and, and our our editorial staff is sort of articulated in news and analytics. And so that's really what we are. We've built a community around sort of the technology implications and market implications of the industry and are, are sort of helping to articulate what's happening. Sounds incredible. So it seems like, obviously, there's a lot of news that you're covering of what is going on within the freight market. What, according to you, is the biggest, most underrated development that's unfolding in the logistics industry at the moment? I think macro trends or data is everything, right? So the future of our industry is, is much like other industries is to really have technology innovation. You need data to support that. And so that's a, that's a trend that uh, is certainly, I think everyone sort of recognizes. What they don't realize is what data can be used to sort of change the industry. And one of the things I'm really enamored with or, or really excited about is more pricing transparency. And really, I think in the future, what we'll see is indexed linked contracts. So uh, right now, a lot of freight is moved on a quoted basis where the humans themselves are quoting freight, uh, basically using sort of their own instincts of the market. And they have a lot of information. The freight brokers specifically have a lot of information about what's happening. A lot of it's instinctual. And I think over the next decade, what we'll see is most large and mature markets is you have index linked contracts. And I think it's something that companies are sort of thinking about but not have yet executed at scale, which is using proprietary uh, indexes or sort of market-based indexes and linking uh, and discounting off those indexes. It's how people buy fuel, it's how people, how the airlines sort of build these models and such, and I think that's what we'll see in the future. And so it's simply not talked about is the idea that a shipper can tender 100% of its freight over to a freight broker or 3PL and not have to be worried about that 3PL gouging them because ultimately they're paying market price. And I think that's how in the future we will see freight done is that that level of transparency will be in the market. Now, in order to affect that, you have to have a third-party price reporting service that's providing the index. It can't be the freight broker themselves. It has to be a third party. And I think that's sort of the, the future of where I see things ended up. And that's that's sort of off the radar underappreciated of what that will do to the market. But once we get to a point of having market transparency, it eliminates the need for having people to quote just basically it taking a lot of spread in the transaction simply because they have better information or better able to negotiate than you are. Right. Makes sense. Uh, and who do you reckon this third party might be? You know, Convoy is doing something with the called dynamic backup, which is basically that exact trend, which is, you know, they're using uh, DAT and, and some proprietary disease. And I think so if you look at in the in the freight market, uh, the 3PLs will be the ones to to actually create the the products themselves, but they'll have to use an index like DAT to sort of reflect price and say this is the current market price. You know, my customer has a discount of 10 or 15 percent off that price, and therefore I'm going to execute the transaction with the market price minus discount. So the customer knows that they are going to get market 
driven price with a discount or a premium based on conditions. And so they're not getting gouged, but you have a service like DHE that's providing that level of transparency. Right. Makes sense. Uh, what do you think is the most overrated trend uh, reported today <laughs> about the freight industry? Uh, that's probably not likely to have any kind of major impact. Well, there's so much of it, right? Uh, and you can start with uh, short-term autonomous. I, you know, autonomous is not going to happen at scale within three years. I just don't. I don't think trucks are leave, drivers leaving the road. But then, of course, you know, in the next decade, it certainly will have an impact. But if I look at stuff that's sort of not that, that probably will never get legs, going directly to blockchain and going to, but but specific to cryptos, traded cryptos. I think those are they've never made sense to me. You know, we started Beta, uh, and we had a lot of interest among these crypto-based organizations, which I never were excited about. But the idea that, that Walmart, you know, you would have this tradable crypto that would float and people would raise money on it, and then all of a sudden the shippers and 3PLs would be buying capacity on a crypto-based token, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, you're talking about having to overhaul accounting systems. You're having to t- talk about overhauling the way people trade and move goods and pay for things it just a floated crypto makes absolutely no sense i mean i i think we're i think that story is somewhat driven out i think people sort of recognize that it's into there are still a couple of players out there talking about floated crypto technologies uh, but i i think those will in the next 12 months i, I think those will die out Fair enough. You talk about cryptos. I can't not ask about blockchain, especially because you've also founded Beta. What exactly is it? Can you talk a little bit about the progress that it's made? What is the role of blockchain within logistics and how long will it be before it's ubiquitous? And also, how is crypto different from blockchain? Because there's a common misconception that when you're talking about blockchain, that you only specifically mean cryptocurrency and not necessarily the technology itself that is blockchain. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So I think you have to separate crypto, which is, I think a crypt, crypto, it, in, in what I'm referring to when I say crypto, it's the floated crypto. It's the, the fact that this currency, it's a, it's a currency, it's a tradable currency that you, you basically have ownership of a right to this currency. And basically what, what you're doing is these crypto-based applications are saying, we're going to solve a problem and we're going to sell off pieces of sort of the right to own the outcome. These are not, they're trying to say they're not securities because they're trying to get away from securities laws. They said, ah, you don't actually own a piece of the business. You just own a right to that currency. And is that currency becomes fungible, so people are buying a finite amount of this good, the value will increase. And so if the market's more liquid, then the value will increase because there's more demand for cryptocurrency. It's very confusing, and that's the reason I don't think they'll survive because they require a real big stretch in your imagination to how you do it. And so that's how most people think of or historically thought of blockchain. Well, we have to reset uh, the view of blockchain because blockchain, all it is, is a uh, effectively a piece of technology that distributes information. So think of it as a giant spreadsheet that's shared between multiple parties. It's a record of what happened. And blockchain as a technology is fundamentally about sharing of consistent information, but each party not having a control over the data. And it's not centralized, it's distributed. And so I think what you'll you'll start to, to see is, um, and, and there's a lot of rules to blockchain I won't, I won't bother to get into right now, but the idea is that the technology of the idea of distribution of, t- of data uh, and having a ledger that everybody sort of agrees to the version of true is is foundationally uh, transformative. But you don't need a crypto. You don't need a floated crypto to do that. And so Beta's role, so we created uh, in our publication, we were writing a lot about blockchain that's impacting transportation. And we were getting phone calls from large technology companies and, and providers 
and the spaces. And this is really interesting, but in order to really affect this to create any kind of blockchain, you have to have standards being adopted by the industry. And so we came up with really the idea was to create the Blockchain Transport Alliance, which was let's have a industry-driven organization that can start to talk about technology standards around blockchain. We announced that we thought we'd have 20 companies in a year. We had 60 within the first week sign up, <laughs> apply for membership. We're over, I think, 4,000 now uh, oh, that wow. have applied for membership, and the organization's about 500. And, it's the largest blockchain organization in the world, industry-specific organization in the world in terms of just total revenues. About $1.7 trillion is in the group, but it includes the large package carriers, parcel carriers like UPS and FedEx. It includes companies like Dalmar on the truck side. It includes people like J.B. Hunt on the truck side. It includes companies like Microsoft and Google and Samsung and the technology vendor side. So you get this whole array. And I think what you have to understand about data is I don't care if the future is blockchain, distributed ledger, or some obscure technology that we've never thought thought about. It doesn't matter. What matters is you have the most influential and largest companies in the space coming together to talk about technology standards. We've never seen that, where companies, regardless of the mode of traffic they're moving or their role in the transportation supply chain, uh, technology industry or banking industry or insurance industry, whatever they're doing, they've never had a forum to come together to talk about solving these big macro issues using technology. And that's what that is about. And so, whether it's, it, it is about blockchain or whether it's just about digitization, it does not matter because you have the decision makers talking about these outcomes. And I think that's what makes better really, really important. That makes a lot of sense. And that sounds very cool as well. What I want to know is, of all of these many, many companies that have joined Bitter, would you say that a majority of these companies are actually bullish on blockchain and actually do believe that that's something that they're going to end up using? Or is it just because it's a fear of missing out and they want to see what's up and therefore be involved as part of the conversation? Well, I think you have to sort of step back and say, ultimately, technology is not... So the view of people is like, we need it now. We have to have blockchain now or it's not working. So you sort of have the naysayers that say, ah, they've not, you know, that has not done anything. There's nothing, there's been out, no outcomes and no standards. I've got to remember that these things are fought over years because you actually have to have a lot of trial and error. You have to have a lot of failures that take place before you can have a standard because you can't just roll something out as a standard and say it's a standard unless you have some trials and you have some tribulations that take place. And so that's the first stage of it. I would say to answer your question a bit more succinctly, there is certainly a, an element of data in the early phases that was fear of missing out. So a lot of FOMO sort of drove the initial uh, adoption or initial applications inside the organization. I think we're past those days. I think, you know, people now sort of look at blockchain and cryptos where they might have considered data about the crypto craze and about blockchain craze. It's sort of well, if they only if they just look at it in those lens, they say, "Well, blockchain's bullshit. It's not. It's not sustainable. It's it's a technology. See, I told you so. Look at the chart." And so, if you you can easily discount it there, and 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 I think in the early phases, FOMO was real among the membership and real among the companies coming into it. I think those are washed out and sort of less uh, interest. But but Bit is still adding twenty to thirty members a month that are not driven by FOMO, and right. what they are are technology executives and companies saying, "I." Have have real fundamental problems, and I want to be a part of designing the future of this industry. I want to make sure that my interests are considered, or at least my voice is considered, as technology standards are coming about, and I want to connect with people doing interesting things. I want to connect with companies that are providing core technology. I want to connect with the vendors that are providing APIs to 
flow data. I want to connect with the participants. That maybe they're my competitors. Uh, maybe they're my suppliers. Maybe they're my customers. And I want to be connected with them at the technology level. And so you look at Bitta. What Bitta makes Bitta magical is it's the first and only organization that I know of where technology executives can come into it. There's a, there's a technology organization that is built around technology executives and decisions. And so a lot of the trade associations in freight are driven for the CEOs and COOs right. and CAP CFOs to come together to talk about financials or talk about operations or talk about public policy. BIDA is the only organization that is technology-centric and driven as a trade organization or the standards organization that brings together technology executives. And that's what I think really drives the activity. So forget blockchain for a second. Just just think about whatever the digital technology is that you're bringing together those participants. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and absolutely a lot of value. Another thing that I'm really, really keen to chat about, which I think is the most interesting part of what you do, is the futures market. Now, first of all, why isn't there already an existing futures market for the trucking industry? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'm glad you asked the question because I get asked that a lot. Why, you know, effectively what it translates to, you know, if you're so smart, why has this not been done before? If it's going to be successful, why has it not been done before? Which is the right question to be asking because sort of this disbelief, if it's so big, so big of a market, naturally there would be a desire to create a futures market. Well, take a step back and figure out what it is that we're actually talking about. We're talking about a cash or financially settled future, which means there is, there's not a truck that's going to bump the dock. There is no physical truck. And that's very hard, frankly, for people to get their heads around is the fact that in a futures market that's financially or cash settled, there is, there's not a truck that will ever bump the dock. These are financially settled contracts, which means someone is offsetting or selling risk to another party that's buying or offsetting their risk. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a financially settled contract is, is effectively the way it works. In order to build a financially settled contract, you need an index. And in order to get an index, you need some way of getting real-time or near-time price discovery in the spot market. That evolution is about seven years old. So you, you look at sort of the evolution of spot indexes in the, in the United States, they're about seven years old before we've had a, had a point where we sort of had real-time price discovery. And in order to, and really it's been in the last three years where they've sort of become big and mature enough to, to be credible to the market where people start using it to sort of rally price around and make decisions based on price, um, that's a really three to four year sort of evolution. So in order to have a futures market, I got to have near time price discovery. In order to get that, I need a price index. In order to get the price index, I have to have what sort of formulations are telematics, ubiquitous, ubiquitous access to telematics. And I needed to move from on-premise computing systems to cloud because all that data that sort of reside inside of companies' computer systems is now flowing out to third parties or is in the cloud. And that's data collection process is very important to build the fundamental data for the market. So mm-hmm. we're at a point where the technologies evolved to a point to provide the framework for a futures market. And that's the reason we're, we're, we're here now. And so these markets sort of naturally evolved and that's where we're at. And, and, and so that's really what you need to build the market. And then you need some sort of market shocks. If you look at oil, so it was news to me when I got into it. Oil wasn't traded in financial markets until 1983. So I always okay. grew up thinking oil was sort of globally traded and had been traded since futures markets were created. That's not the case. It was 1983, and it was sort of caused by the OPEC impact of OPEC sort of controlling world supply of oil, which oh. sort of forced people to say, I, you know, we need real investments in oil production in the United States and 
Norway and, and uh, in other parts of the world. But in order for people to want to go out and spend the money and drill for oil, they needed to have the ability to make long-term decisions and not have downward risk in price. Right. And so they created futures contracts to create that environment. And so up until last year, we didn't have our OPEC moment in trucking. We had our OPEC moment in trucking with the ELD mandate and sort of the shortage capacity. And so we're at a point where the market is naturally willing to do uh, to create this, this, this contract. That's interesting. So what do you think it's going to actually take for it to take off? I know that you've mentioned that the opportunity is right based on all of the changes that are happening within the industry. But but does this mean that it's going to need a, a fair number of people or a critical mass to actually be interested for this to take off? Yeah, well, you, you, need, you need liquidity. So you look at we, – we've studied successful and unsuccessful futures markets, and there's more – unsuccessful than there are successful ones. But if you look at the sort of the necessary formulas to create a successful and liquid futures market, what you need is you need a big market, first of all. It's got to be big enough to be interesting enough. And of course, trucking is 30% bigger than oil, natural gas, and coal combined in the U.S. So it's a massive market. It's huge. And so uh, we, we meet the definition there. It needs to be a liquid market. You have to be a lot of participants in the market in and out because you need to have a lot of sort of disagreements about a price or at least the different disagreements about exposure. You know, one company has to be exposed opposite. Freight meets that definition. So you meet the, you meet the size of the market. You need volatility. You know, you're talking about 40% movement in price in, in the last 24 months. Certainly meet that definition. You need, you need to have a clearinghouse and an exchange, which we partner with Nodal on that. You need an index that people consider to benchmark. DAT has done a really good job of becoming the benchmark of the industry. So you sort of have the formulas that you need. I talked about that OPEC shock, the OPEC moment, if you will, and great, we had that. And then you have this ecosystem to sort of build around it. You have to educate the market, both the traders that will trade it, the speculators, as well as the people hedging. So they understand where the market's headed. You need fundamental data. And then you need an ecosystem. And so I think what we at Freightways have done is tried to build that community, that ecosystem of awareness. So people start thinking about the freight market as if it was a, it was a marketplace and, and, and an economy of sorts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really been the thrust behind what we've done. We've gone out and aggregated data to sort of supplement that. And working with DAT and Nodal to sort of build the constructs of the market, we think we're at a point where the market is educated sufficiently enough to sort of launch the early days of the contracts. Right. So when are we looking at this launch? Yeah. So March 29, 2019 is the oh, date. Oh, we've got a date. The, we have a very firm date, which I've waited two years. I'm so, so excited. Actually, over almost two and a half years uh, to get a date. And we now have a date. Oh, wow. There you go. What effect do you think uh, this will have on the business, Craig? Who do you think this will benefit? Who do you think this will not benefit? You know, it's, 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 a, it's a hard question on, on say, so the, the benefits are obvious, right? So look at, at who benefits. It's companies with, with price exposure. So it's the guys that own the trucks that are worried about prices falling apart or they want to increase payroll uh, and pay their drivers more because it's hard to get to. They have to make these long-term decisions. If you're going to make long-term decisions, you need prices to be supported over the long haul. So those are sort of obvious players. And then you look at the shippers, which are buying capacity, and they're trying to manage their budgets and cash flow, and they're exposed to prices going up on them or running against them. And so naturally, as they sort of manage their shipping cycles, being able to offset that risk of what they will pay 
is very important to them. So those are the, sort of the natural buyers and sellers. The interesting thing are going to be the third-party logistics companies, the brokers, sort of live inside that world where the market is opaque and in some ways they benefit from it. And I would say this, that we're at a point where the three PLs broadly and brokers broadly that only live in a market where there's opaqueness and only live in a market where there's a lack of transparency and the only way that they make money or the way that they really expand their margins is by their ability to negotiate. Those, and it has nothing to do with futures, take futures off the table. It is inevitable that that business model is at risk through digitization, Uberization, Amazonization, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. The level of transparency is coming into this industry and it's going, that whole ability just to make money because I can negotiate well is at risk long term. And so the question then comes, if, if you have a futures market that provides transparency for the future and awareness of where the market's headed and you have the ability to de-risk it, what do those companies that live in that opaqueness and sort of lack of transparency end up doing? I think some of them will end up actually trading the market. They'll end up saying, I, you know, we have really good people that can negotiate so we have instincts in the market. We should deploy them to trade. And I think there will be winners in the market and the third-party logistics world. And there'll be some that just don't do well because the market is, a, is is more transparent than it's ever been. And regardless of whether we exist or futures exist, that's a, that's a standard that's going to take place regardless. Transparency is coming to our industry, and it's going to completely change the way that participants that don't live in a transparent world are going to operate. They're just going to have to respond to better transparency that's inevitable. Do you think this would have an effect on the truck drivers themselves or the kind of money that they make? I think what it does is it gives, you know, it gives them, it gives their carriers as people that own the trucks and probably the market a little bit more certain in cash flow. Is the whole thing about hedging is I, I want to protect my cash flow, right? I want to manage the amount of money I make. Um, so in many ways, it somewhat protects them from sort of the boom and bust cycles of the market. You know, an individual driver should probably, if they're not informed, if they don't really know what's happening, probably shouldn't trade the market because in many ways it becomes gambling. If you're just trading because you think you know something, right. but you're not actually directly offsetting right. exposure, you're not doing anything really good. And so they should probably stay away from it. But what it does, it helps create more liquidity, more market transparency, and ultimately they benefit from that. That makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about the truck driver shortage itself. Uh, That's something that everyone seems to keep going on about. Is that a genuine problem? And if it is, how does the industry solve for it? (laughs) So I love this question because the question, is it a shortage or is it a squeeze? And the squeeze, people like, what, you made up that word? No, it's not a made up word. It's a word that's common in commodity markets. It means a squeeze is caused when the price is not reflecting the actual cost of a good. So you see it, you see squeezes happen in oil where all of a sudden people realize there's a shortage of oil and the price has to go up. You see it in airline seats and real estate markets. Squeezes mean that whatever the price that you're trying to buy something at is below what the price should be, and all of a sudden the market realizes that as a run-up on price, and that's a squeeze. And I think that's what we've seen today. I don't think there's a shortage per se. And the reason I say that is the market's going to figure this out. Uh, the, the trucking industry is adding new truck drivers. As a percent, there are new truck drivers coming into the industry. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the shortage, if we want to call it, can be fixed through better economics. There's certainly lifestyle elements come into it, but what it comes back to is someone is not willing to do the job that's required of them to be a truck driver because they simply are not going to make enough money counter to some other position, whether it's working oil rigs, working construction, teaching school, whatever it is. Right. 
they can find more desirable jobs, you know, at, a, at an Amazon uh, sorting facility than they can driving an over-the-road truck. And what it suggests is if the industry really wants to solve this problem, and I, and I argue that the industry does not want to solve the driver shortage problem or squeeze, and I'll tell you why. No, no single trucking company wants to have the industry driver shortage solved. And any individual trucking company that suggests that they want the entire industry shortage solved is is either misrepresenting the truth or is confused as what that means. And the reason I say that is they want the industry to be short supply as an industry. And what they want to do is they want to solve their own driver shortage problem <laughs> and not the industry's driver shortage problem. Because the, the driver shortage or the driver squeeze gives them pricing power. Right. You take away the shortage of drivers and all of a sudden they have no pricing power right. it's, it is effectively a loose market which means they have no ability to control pricing they're benefiting from trends of a shortage of drivers every single executive wants to solve the driver shortage for their company not a single executive wants to solve it for the industry very interesting so it looks like it's a much bigger problem for retailers or shippers than it is for carriers if the industry yeah. has a quote-unquote driver shortage uh, or driver squeeze problem. A very interesting way to look at it. Do you anticipate there being a lot more acquisitions and mergers in the industry over the next few years? I think what will happen is sort of the capital markets are starting to put premiums on companies that's relieved with technology, right? And, you know, even in, in, say, Convoy's case, where they're raising over a billion dollars, you know, their revenues are sort of reported in a couple hundred million. You know, they're getting three times revenue. And you take a company like a, another public truck company that's trading at, you know, 20, uh, 20 basis or, or point two, you know, 20% of their, of their revenues. And, and, and you're comparing the two and you're saying, you know, Convoy is getting paid three times revenue. This company is getting point two zero. There's a dis- difference between Convoy's valuation and say a public truckload carrier's valuation or even a private truckload carrier's valuation. And I think what will happen is that the convoys of the world sort of have this currency that enables them to do acquisitions um, that aren't as dilutive, but sort of insource all that freight, insource all that infrastructure, and are able to adopt it. The other question, you know, if you're a convoy or you're J.B. Hunt, why do you even need to buy them? If you can ultimately, and I think the question that Valley's sort of doing is saying, you know, we don't need them to make money right now. We don't need Convoy or Uber to make money. J.B. Hunt's sort of different because they're sort of they have their investors and the public and they have to make money. Right. Uh, they're they're sort of playing these rules that are, are you know, Convoy and Uber in many ways are playing like unfair. I'm not judge. It's not a judgmental get unfair rules. It's just they play by different rules than what those other guys do because their investors are saying build up this massive enterprise and we'll continue to fund it. We don't care about the margins. And I think on the short term basis that that's that gives them an enormous amount of edge where they can go in and buy market share, sort of buy up right. the, the demand and ship volumes without having to make money and how do you compete against that that's that's a rule that it's a playbook that you just can't that's the ultimate weapon in these things question that i had that i probably should have started with there are so many different abbreviations and jargons within the freight industry i've been in the industry for about three years now i still don't know what the difference between a three pl and four pl is (laughs) could you break that down for me could you could you help me (laughs) with the basics please craig Oh, you got to ask the, the the hardest question at the end. <laughs> so I'll try. I will try. So third-party logistics company is pretty easy, right? Somebody that, that is managing freight on behalf of somebody else, and there's sort of a loose definition to what that means. Four-party logistics is sort of managed, the way I view it, it's sort of a managed services model, which is it's someone that's acting on behalf of the shipper, sort of a 
designated administrator of freight on behalf of the shipper, and they very well may source a third party or a multiple amount of third party logistics companies. So they play the fourth party, which means they're sort of managing the upper layer of it, and they may have three PLs that they source from. So they're acting uh-huh. as the agent on behalf of the shipper. Okay, got it. So what's the difference between a 3PL and a freight forwarder then? Yeah, so that's another term, uh, freight broker, 3PL. So 3PL is sort of that macro term. So freight forwarder is a, is a term that's commonly used. Uh, it's used in the U.S., and typically freight forwarder is used in the air freight industry, sort of expediting onto air freight. Uh, but freight forwarder is sort of a European, British term. Uh, that that basically it plays the same role as a freight broker in the U.S. does, um, but it's it's a it's an intermediary that's basically routing freight. Freight forwarding typically in the U.S. is referred to air freight uh, predominantly, mm-hmm. um, and freight brokerage is typically referred to truckload. Got it. And then but three PO is all encompassing. It includes the MVOCCs, which are the ocean folks. It includes. You know, 3PLs could very well include your warehouse operators. It could include your truck brokerage operations. It could include your air freight forwarding operations. It could include all of it. And so 3PLs are this macro term for everything. Thank you. Final question. Paint me a picture. We are in 2028. What does the freight industry look like? Yeah, I think it's a lot of consolidation. I think you'll you'll have much more cohesive experiences, uh, probably some uniformity and digital experiences where companies are supposed to respond. And I think... I think ultimately some of these digital companies, and it could be the Expos, it could be the JB Hunts, um, or it could be the Convoys and the Ubers. I think that, that we, we start to look at sourcing freight from sort of these platform businesses, and I think they're going to end up winning the long game. And in 2028, I think we'll have some degree of autonomous trucks. We may not be full level five uh, over the road, certainly be level four where it's sort of the driver touches a button and it drives them from point A to point B. Think of an autopilot in an airplane where practically they do nothing. Maybe they're just there to, to mm-hmm. sort of manage systems and, and, and make sure, you know, if something does go wrong, they're available to do it. But I think we'll start to see sort of the first layers of autonomous. And I think the guys that win that are the ones that sort of have the freight flowing over their systems. Um, and so I think we'll see a lot more consolidation. And I think we'll see sort of these digital and native companies or digitally enabled companies uh, sort of become where become the primary sources of freight. And then I think we'll see linked contracts. I think we'll see a, a situation where it's no longer a, who I do business with is not how well they negotiate, but um, I'm able to benchmark my purchasing off of an index and it's transparent. And then ultimately it's how fast am I able to get capacity and how fast am I going to be able to track it sounds better than what we have now. <laughs> much, better, I promise. I, much better. There you go. I know. I've had such a nice time chatting with you, Craig. Uh, a lot of stuff, a lot of myths dispelled uh, between what a 3PL is and 4PL is. Uh, and really, <laughs> really interesting chat about uh, the futures markets. March 29th uh, is the date to mark in my calendar, is it? That is it. There you go. Well, I will be looking to see all of the different developments that happen, not just within the industry, but also with freight weights. I guess that's going to be a representation of what happens in the industry anyway. Uh, But I've had a really nice time chatting with you. Thank you so much for taking out the time. Maybe we should do another round once you actually launch the futures market and see where that goes. Yeah, happy to do it. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me on.